Welcome to COG, where we explore conversations in obstetrics and gynaecology. Today's conversation is around gestational diabetes, and we'll be chatting to Dr. Sophie Poulter, an endocrinologist and obstetric medicine physician. Then we'll have a quick chat with Dr. Jessica McGrath, a senior pediatric registrar, about the neonatal management of babies affected by GDM. Then Ted and I take to the latest literature to discuss recent publications on GDM. You're listening to Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology. Thanks for joining us for episode two. Following feedback, Rachel and I think we need to identify who we are. Rachel, you go first. My name's Rachel Nugent. I'm a senior ONG registrar at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital, and I'm delighted to be collaborating with Ted on this project, where we're hoping to talk to a range of people about interesting topics in obstetrics and gynaecology. So I would ask our listeners, if you want to get in touch with me via the Podbean page, cog.podbean.com, or leave a review on Facebook, or if you want to email me at cogconversation at gmail.com, I'd be very happy to take feedback and start investigating any topics that you, our listeners, find interesting. Thanks, Rachel. So I'm very happy to leave all the social media to Rachel, which is my complete Achilles heel. Ted Weave is my name, and I'm an associate professor in obstetrics and gynaecology at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital. And my academic title has been bestowed upon me by the University of Queensland. So I've been in active ONG practice for about 30 years and have had a wide range of experience in this hospital and also through the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, where I've held several active roles over the years. So like Rachel, I'm very interested in exploring this new medium for advancing the science of obstetrics and gynaecology. So shall we talk about gestational diabetes? We will. Today we're excited to talk with Dr. Sophie Poulter, an endocrinologist and obstetric medicine physician at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital. Welcome to COG, Sophie, and thanks for joining us for episode two. It's a pleasure to be here. Sophie, you're the daughter of an obstetrician. Do you think that fact had any influence on your path into obstetric medicine? Do you know, I hate to say not at all. I worked, oh, I watched my father uh, work very hard over the years and go out and deliver a couple of babies a night and have very little sleep, so no, I had no intention of being an obstetrician. Uh, but I, I did do endocrinology and became interested that way and had some great people that I was exposed to who did obstetric medicine over the years. And there's a particularly strong culture in Queensland, uh, hence I did both. So today we're talking about gestational diabetes. There are massively increasing rates of GDM in our population. What do you think are the main drivers for that? I think it's multifactorial, Rachel. It's it's driven by a number of things. I think things like age. Uh, we're getting much older for our first babies and our subsequent babies. I think we're we're getting bigger. The the BMI is increasing, and the average. BMI has changed dramatically over the last 25 years, uh, both of those being big risk factors for things like GDM. Uh, With that, I think we're getting more comorbidities. I potentially think that maybe IVF and greater accessibility to assisted fertility mean a lot more of these women are potentially getting pregnant than may have in the times past that are at higher risk of, of gestational diabetes. And I guess lastly, we're also potentially seeing a second or third generation of women of mothers who have had gestational diabetes and obesity or overweight as well. And I think all of those are potential contributors. And lastly, is uh, there's been a change recently with the uh, diagnostic criteria and treatment targets, and I think that may have impacted on more recent numbers. Since the advent of the ADIPS targets, there's some concern that we are now over-diagnosing the condition and that the diagnostic thresholds are too low. What do you think of that, or do you think that glycemic control should be even tighter than the current guidelines state? I think it's really important to remember that the old targets were designed to identify women who'd gone to develop type 2 diabetes in later life and uh, were established around 40 years ago with a few minor changes over the years. The current targets, the more recent diagnostic criteria, were based on the HARPO data. Uh, This was a very big multinational trial that looked at a snapshot of women's OGTT results and then subsequent pregnancy outcomes. Uh, There was a strong correlation in this between maternal glucose levels and a range of adverse outcomes. Uh, There there weren't any distinct 
thresholds, but there was a linear association between glucose level and adverse pregnancy outcomes, namely birth weight over the 90th centile, C-section delivery, neonatal hypoglycemia and cord C-peptide as a measure of fetal hyperinsulinemia. Now, these levels were used to decide on new diagnostic criteria and what the levels that came up with represent are those associated with a 75% increase in risk compared to the rate seen at mean glucose levels. And these were based on outcomes of excess fetal size and adiposity greater than the 90th centile and cord C peptile. Now, I think these are evidence-based. They're, they're looking directly at pregnancy outcomes. And I think, given those two things, they're better than the old diagnostic criteria. There have been some who've argued that these aren't tight enough. People have argued that they're not hard clinical outcomes on which to base diagnostic criteria, um, but prepare, you know, compared to the previous diagnostic criteria, they are at least evidence-based and target pregnancy outcomes specifically. So for your second question about potentially aiming for tighter control, uh, our treatment of GDM is looking to control blood glucose levels to as close to normal as possible, aiming to try to reduce risks back to baseline. Now, there was a really interesting meta-analysis of about 11 trials looking at glycemia in normal non-diabetic pregnancies. And what it showed was the patterns of normal glycemia were way lower than we expected. So the normal values were fasting for one hour of 6.1 and two hour of 5.5. And, and the study authors argued that perhaps we should be looking at our current diagnostic criteria and, and saying that they were too high and we should be aiming for one standard deviation above normal, namely one hour of 6.8 and a two hour of 6.1, which is very much tighter than our current diagnostic criteria. I don't think we need to, to go to that, but I think it's an interesting argument. This study, among others, was also the basis for the treatment targets, so different from the diagnostic criteria, but the treatment targets suggested by ADIPS and certainly adopted in our Queensland statewide guidelines. They use that two standard deviation above the mean values for the pregnant women without known risk factors, and that's where we've come to those treatment targets of Fasting's under 5, 1 hour's under 7.4, and 2 hours under 6.7. So you mentioned the diagnostic criteria as well as the new tighter targets as laid out by ADIPS. Can you tell me how that all came about? Did it all roll out at the same time, or was the new diagnostic criteria introduced prior to the new glycemic targets? I, I believe how it happened was they actually looked to change both at the same time. I think the HARPO data suggested the diagnostic criteria were relatively well established and introduced in a number of nations worldwide. And I think they were reasonably accepted in Australia. The treatment targets are still quite controversial. It was introduced as a guideline by ADIPS and then subsequently rescinded. And the current guidelines suggest the new treatment criteria are for further research. So it is not necessarily part of the guidelines like the diagnostic criteria. Interestingly, our statewide guidelines working group uh, chose to include them as part of the Queensland uh, guidelines for treatment of, of GDM, which I think is, is um, being quite forward thinking, but potentially uh, it's not. Around Australia, there is a lot of different treatment targets used. So Sophie, there was a lot of concern with the introduction of tighter criteria that we'd see a really big drain on the resources available in hospitals to try and deliver the same service with an increased patient load. We've had a number of studies on cost effectiveness out of the USA, and we've had similar studies from Spain that have shown that the approach we're currently using is cost effective. Do you think, though, that when we're undertaking such enormous systemic change in terms of changing the diagnostic criteria and therefore doubling the expected rates of gestational diabetes in our population, we should be more rigorous in the assessment of economic impact and cost effectiveness. Uh, there was an initial prediction that the new diagnostic criteria would increase numbers of women with GDM in Australia by anywhere between about 9.6 and 13.6%. Locally, it's been about 11%. Obviously, the high numbers being diagnosed and the tighter treatment targets have increased workload and, and the use of resources. 
there have been studies, as you've mentioned, that suggest cost effectiveness. And we need to, I guess, remember the basis of the new diagnostic criteria was the impact on birth weight and fetal hyperinsulinemia. And these outcomes are likely to have an impact in the offspring in a very long-term fashion in terms of their risk of type 2 diabetes and obesity. So the main cost-benefit might be really long-term. Longer-term follow-up and evaluation of this is needed, but it is going to be long-term and potentially a little difficult. But all information thus far, in terms of cost-effectiveness, suggests that it is expensive but cost-effective. And what do you recommend for screening if someone declines a GTT? It's certainly not the most popular test that women can have. And there's quite a lot of suggestion from women that they find the test uncomfortable. And we know that some women flatly refuse to even have it. So what do you think is the next best option? Uh, It's difficult. Uh, The problem is all the other options are less precise. Uh, But the options include, uh, I guess, firstly, a GCT. Uh, But you need to be aware that misses about a quarter of GDM. Uh, About 30% of women will be recalled for a second test, which might be troublesome for them. And it's also not very reproducible. So it's not an ideal test. And that's why it was scrapped as a first-line test and the universal screening was brought in. For me, in my very privileged position as an endocrinologist, is I often get women, I teach them how to use a glucometer, and each glucometer has a couple of days' worth of strips included, and I actually get them to go home and take four times a day blood sugars, fasting, and two hours post-meals. After that, you need to sign up with the NDSS or pay a significant amount for strips, but usually that's enough to get a bit of a view about uh, what their glycemia looks like. If they've got completely normal glycemic levels, and based on that study I talked about with the meta-analysis looking at what normal levels are in pregnancy, so we're talking around the fours, fasting, one hour, 6.1, two hours around 5.5 or less, then you can feel much more reassured that the chance of them having significant uh, glucose intolerance is potentially less. Uh, you can use an HbA1c, but as I mentioned, it's it's not as accurate. It's very retrospective, and you're probably getting two or th- you know, two months of normal glycemia before you get that sudden escalation of glucose intolerance. When we're managing it, we often talk to women about their options, and a lot of them say they would like to avoid using insulin. So, how good are the currently used oral hypoglycemic agents at controlling blood sugar levels? And are there any downsides to their use? You'll be familiar, of course, with the MIG trial, the metformin in gestational diabetes trial that was a Brisbane trial. What did the MIG trial tell us about the management of gestational diabetes? The the two oral agents that have safety data in pregnancy are metformin and gliburide. Gliburide is not used in Australia. The main oral agent here is metformin. Uh, The MIG trial was robust and well-constructed, and what it showed was that metformin was an effective, well-tolerated and safe treatment. Uh, It also had some other potentially beneficial outcomes. So there was less hypoglycemia, uh, less weight gain in mums, and and mums certainly preferred it as a treatment compared to insulin. But there were a few precautions to be taken on board. So in the MIG trial, about half the women on metformin also required insulin, albeit at much lower doses. Another downside is the GI side effects, but these can usually be carefully managed by starting with low doses, taking it with meals and up titrating slowly. And if women are able to continue to take the medication, most side effects will subside in a few days. They need to know that metformin does cross the placenta. Insulin doesn't. MIG didn't show any significant differences between the offspring of women who take the metformin or compared to the insulin group. And that was at birth, and they published the two-year follow-up, which didn't show any significant differences. And I've heard Janet Rowan present uh, the, the subsequent follow-up, which I think was around seven years, which again showed safety. But women need to understand that longer term there, are, there isn't safety data or there's no evidence yet. I guess the last one is I don't use it in women who have evidence of fetal growth restriction uh, because it has been associated with lower birth weights. So women need to be fully counselled about the pros and cons of metformin before prescribing, but I think it's a very, a very reasonable and widely used medication, and rightly so. Of interest, most of the, the MIG trial was undertaken with short-acting metformin, whereas most of the Australian centres will use the long-acting metformin just due to the once-daily dosing and increased compliance. Um, and that's what we tend to use here. Mm. Is there any data around that? No. So the, all the, the, the main data was with uh, short-acting metformin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think everyone's reasonably comfortable with the, the use, its use and, and, and safety, and the guidelines suggest uh, uh, long-acting metformin. 
Um, trying to remember metformin two or three times a day is a bit tricky for the best of times, let alone in, uh, in young, active mums who often have a couple of kids at home. And the gastrointestinal side effects are improved with a longer yeah, acting dose. Yeah, longer acting taken at night time with their evening meal. You often find you can limit it. Yeah. And starting from one tablet and slowly titrating up you know, every couple of days and you know, as tolerated works quite nicely. So Sophie, we're all familiar with the short-term risk to babies associated with gestational diabetes, you know, macrosomia, large for gestational age infants, prematurity, and neonatal hypoglycemia. But this really is just the tip of the iceberg for the child. We know that there are long-term effects like impaired glucose tolerance and obesity uh, that are much more common in the offspring of women affected by GDM. We know that GDM causes epigenetic changes in the fetus, which are likely to go on for generations. So what hope do you think there is for the next generation? And in fact, those changes that are seen in the offspring from an early age, as young as seven in some of the Harpo offspring um, in in some centres. There's evidence that children born to women before the diagnosis of diabetes have a lower risk of type 2 diabetes and obesity compared to their siblings born after the diagnosis, despite the same genetic makeup. And it suggests that exposure to hypoglycemia has an impact on a number of things in the offspring, from how the pancreatic cells respond to the glucose challenge, right through to epigenetic changes. And there are potentially many targets to change outcomes for this next generation, and prevention obviously is better than treatment. So we should be looking to impact on all risk factors for diabetes for the mums, largely weight, diet, exercise habits, for example, uh, in our women of childbearing years to target pregnancy complications. But it's more than that. Women run the household in many areas. They're often in charge of the meals on the table, the activities of their families, and what habits, healthy or not, that become normal for their kids and for the whole family. So education for these women may target things like how to buy fresh food within their budget, how to create a meal and how they can build exercise within their day. Ideally, this type of education should happen preconception, but while pregnancy planning rates are so poor, we may have to look at all women of reproductive age. We also capture them in pregnancy, and that's an opportunity to educate them and support them to achieve things like a healthy gestational weight gain with recommendations based on their pre-pregnancy BMI. Now, the gestational weight gain has been shown to impact again on the offspring risk of diabetes and obesity. In the immediate postpartum period, they also captured population for us. And this is going to be a time when they're relatively receptive to education, but changing their diet and exercise might be a little harder in women who've got a newborn, where they're often just in survival mode, where healthy eating and exercising are not always the top priority. But I think it's also a time when we can support things like breastfeeding efforts. Women with diabetes can often have a delayed lactogenesis and have difficulty breastfeeding. And if we can create some kind of better support to maintain breastfeeding, so establish and maintain breastfeeding, we may be able to reap the benefits that are associated with the weight loss. And also it's been shown to reduce the risk of or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. And lastly, the other time where I think we can really target these women is is interpregnancy weight gain. It's been shown that even a gain of one to two BMI points is associated with an almost doubling of the risk of future GDM. And contrast to that, a weight loss of around two kilograms per metre squared in overweight and obese women will reduce this risk by 80%. If we can target all of these things and try to look at women to have a a healthy diet, healthy exercise, lose weight or maintain a healthy body weight, as well as looking at gestational weight gain, we may be able to impact on these uh, changes that impact offspring. The evidence is fairly well established that diet and exercise alone are relatively ineffective at helping women control their weight in pregnancy. But the microbiome is a new area of investigation, and there is a single trial suggesting that the use of probiotics in pregnancy can reduce GDM rates. There's also work on fecal transplant for reducing obesity and GDM. How far away are we from significant breakthroughs with these novel approaches? I think it's under investigation. It may not be as far as we think. So the gut microbiome is an evolving story, and the suggestion that It could modulate metabolic health and may affect things like insulin resistance and lipid metabolism, which in turn affects pregnancy outcomes. 
So what has been shown is that there's a significant change over the course of the pregnancy. It's been shown that there's a relationship between the composition of the microbiota and things like metabolic hormones, baseline weight, gestational weight gain in pregnant women. And there are very distinctive patterns in women who are overweight and obese and those who have GDM and were at high risk of type 2. So as you mentioned, there's one study that looked at probiotics given to normal white women in pregnancy, and it altered the gut microbiome composition and the metabolism of these women in early gestation, and subsequently reduced rates of GDM by up to two-thirds, and also a small reduction in fetal birth weight. weight. Uh, It's promising, but one study is not enough to draw definite conclusions. So there is a study being undertaken uh, by a Brisbane group, actually, uh, which is still uh, underway without uh, we're looking to publish I think in the next uh, the next couple of years uh, to see if intervention with uh, probiotics which are a little bit more palatable I think uh, than fecal transplant uh, m- might have an impact so in the future modification might be another preventative and therapeutic treatment to reduce this risk uh, but I don't think we have enough evidence at this stage to, to move I've never heard anyone use the words palatable and fecal transplant <laughs> so close together. <laughs> it's got really great evidence in in a number of other other um, conditions, you know, inflammatory bowel diseases and C. You know, diff. C. diff treatment, and uh, and it can be life saving. But um, I think in pregnancy, it's it's still it would still be a, a, a an interesting sell. What's the role for bariatric surgery in women with morbid obesity and optimising pregnancy outcomes? Do you think it's time to start publicly funding this kind of care? So bariatric surgery is still the only intervention that consistently shows a significant and sustained weight loss and a reduction in weight-related comorbidities like your type 2 diabetes, hypertension and sleep apnea. So pregnancy after bariatric surgery is associated with much lower rates of GDM and large for gestational babies, but it did show a high rate of small for gestational age babies as well. I think it certainly has a role, uh, and I think there should be publicly funded bariatric surgery at a greater level than there currently is. And I think it should be open to men and women. But I think in our population that we're talking about who will subsequently go on and get pregnant, there are a few caveats we need to remember. So it's recommended that women wait at least one or two years after surgery to fall pregnant. It's a time of the most dramatic weight loss and establishing potential nutritional deficiencies that may impact on on the the baby. It's important that women who are undergoing bariatric uh, uh, surgery who are of childbearing years also get contraceptive advice because the weight loss makes them more fertile and they are more likely to fall pregnant. It's not without risk and and potential issues in pregnancy, depending on the type of procedure they have and the degree of malabsorption created, are things like nutritional deficiencies. There's been shown to have a greater severity of nausea and vomiting. There are things like dumping syndrome. So there needs to be careful assessment for and management of these complications. And obviously, as I mentioned, it impacts on fetal growth. So careful assessment of fetal growth is also really important. So to answer again your question, should it be more widely available? Yes, I think so for men and women to impact on their current and long-term health as well as their offspring. But I don't think it's the panacea to the overarching overweight and obesity problem. So what kind of public health policy positions do you think will create true impact with regards to improving the diabetes epidemic? It's a really big question and there are certainly people who are much smarter than I who can answer it better. Uh, High-level policy and legislative change are are, are needed to target the obesogenic environment that we live in. I think you could talk about making fast food, junk food, soft drink more expensive, perhaps more highly taxed, and use this to subsidise healthier options. And we've seen this work for things like tobacco. Other targets include limiting fast food direct advertising to children, uh, providing incentives for healthy eating and increased level of physical activity. And also I think there needs to be greater support into research for, for treatment uh, for obesity. Uh, all of those are potential targets, but I think it's a, a, a very big and wide-ranging uh, question. Mm. And you mentioned earlier the basic education strategy of of teaching people how to shop mm-hmm. uh, and how to cook. I think we forget that uh, that no one no one wants to be obese. Uh, most people would prefer to be slimmer and we need to give them as many tools in their toolbox to do that. 
Some of it is genetic, some of it is, is neurohormonal, and I think they're a little trickier to manage. And there are there is you know more research into that and how we can block a couple of neuro you know, hormones that to try to impact on that. But I think the other thing that's not always easily recognized is people often take the same track as their parents. And they don't always know how to go to a supermarket, collect up all the things they need for a healthy meal, and then take them home and cook them. So particularly different socioeconomic uh, uh, groups uh, may be used to eating fast food because it's cheaper, it's easier, it's what they have learned from their parents. They may not have uh, healthy exercise programs because they can't afford to go to gyms and it's difficult where they're living to be able to access sporting grounds or playgrounds for their kids. So I think a lot of education needs to go in and there needs to be a a lot of uh, uh, changes potentially in communities where you can make a lot of the uh, outdoor activities more easily accessible. So it's interesting that a lot of obstetric medicine practitioners and also obstetricians are looking at periconceptual medicine and optimization of a woman's health to try to improve pregnancy outcomes. How do you think we can best execute this model given that a lot of women don't see practitioners like obstetricians and obstetric medicine practitioners until they're pregnant and they are already seeing though their GP and sometimes a midwife in the preconception period. Uh, so we need to build it into the GPs and midwives care and I, I think we might need to create a financial incentive for GPs and midwives to engage in this care that we've described before. This way they may be able to create time to address the issues that have been raised and build a multidisciplinary team support structure around the woman to help her achieve these goals of a healthy lifestyle and and weight loss at a time which is most receptive to intervention, which is going to be the preconception or immediate postconception time frame. For us, we have women presenting for their postpartum OGTTs or to their GP for their child's vaccinations. That may also be a time to build in a long appointment to help address some of these issues with ongoing reviews to see if they can be supported and reviewed to continue to make changes. Ideally, the GP and midwife setting may also be able to identify other medical comorbidities, other medication issues, that kind of thing that might benefit from a review by a specialist like an obstetric physician within a pre-pregnancy counselling kind of setting. So we all know that health economics are a critical part of healthcare these days, but we'd ask you to do a little bit of blue sky thinking now, and if we had infinite resources for caring for women, and maybe if you were queen for a day, what would you want to do to improve the health of women around their risk of gestational diabetes? I think this is I think this is a tough one. I, I, I think I'm going to be ambitious. I, I probably need longer than a day, but uh, I think I would do things like, one, I'd, I'd aim to make fresh food cheaper, more easily accessible, making fast food more expensive and a harder option to choose. Keeping in mind, as we've discussed, we may need to back this up with education about how to shop, how to prepare meals with the food in these at-risk populations. Two, I think I'd ban soft drink. Uh, I would ban yes. juice, all those all those drinks that are full of empty calories and that are a significant contributor to general weight gain. I think I'd limit technology for kids. I, I think taking away things like iPads or TVs or gaming systems uh, and, and trying to encourage the childhood that a lot of us had, where it was a lot more outdoors, uh, is an ideal world kind of stuff. But I think that would be something I'd aim for. I'd look at things to increase exercise. So for mums, things like you know cheap or free childcare at gyms. I think for kids, things like building sports facilities or playgrounds within community areas. Looking at organised activities, so groups targeting young families to walking or outdoor play. I think I'd aim to have contraception discussed very early for women so they can control their fertility and plan their pregnancies as well as make it financially accessible. And I think we've done reasonably well at that in Australia. And I also think greater accessibility to public bariatric surgery. I think all of those would require a long-term commitment. It may not be achievable, but they would be ideal. And one final question, Sophie. What's the key issue in women's health that needs to be better addressed by health services in the next five years? I'm sure there are a number of, of health issues, but of course, in this forum, I think the overweight obesity problem is 
it in women of childbearing years is paramount. Uh, we've touched on a few interventions to be considered, so I'm going to think in a more local sense. And I think we, we personally need to start by targeting the time frame that is most accessible for us. And I think that's the interpregnancy time period, uh, particularly for women who've had GDM, a complicated pregnancy or, or just being overweight or obese. And, and certainly locally, we're looking at our model of care to try to intervene with a multidisciplinary team to address things like diet, exercise, breastfeeding and the diabetes risk and follow up. And we're going to try to create a perceived value around this for these time-strapped young mums uh, to attend and be educated as best as possible and also try to make it as easy as possible for them to live a healthy, healthy lifestyle. Thanks for joining us today, Sophie on COG. A pleasure. That was endocrinologist and obstetric medicine physician Sophie Poulter talking about gestational diabetes. In preparation for this episode, I spoke to a number of mums in the Townsville High Risk Antenatal Clinic who'd all been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, and I asked them why they felt it was important to look after their diabetes in pregnancy. For the baby, that's the main thing. Um, so the baby doesn't have any, um, the baby comes out healthy, doesn't have any problems after birth, and for myself, so I don't get it later down the track. Yeah get diabetes? Um, just mainly for Bob, for myself, because I don't know what it's going to be after. I, I, I really want to be healthy and the baby as well, both of us. Yeah. Still high risk of when you gave birth of having these big babies and having complications. So that dawned on me that, yeah, it's better to have that, you know, extra precautions rather than regretfully having the baby or having any complications while giving birth. And a big thank you to Bronwyn, Geraldine, Jenny Bless and Bev who all gave their time to talk to me about this important issue for mum. Next up on COG, I'm talking to Dr Jessica McGrath who's a paediatric advanced trainee at the Lady Salento Hospital in Brisbane. Jessica is going to talk to me today about the effect of gestational diabetes on the neonate and I do apologise to our listeners for the quality of the sound secondary to the Skype call. Jess, thanks for joining me on COG. Thanks Rachel, thank you for having me. What's the extra burden on the nursery for GDM? What kind of cares are required for the baby of a mother with GDM different to uh, a a non-GDM pregnancy? Yeah, so I guess complications can be encountered right from the time of delivery, especially with macrosomic infants of a diabetic mother. So they would be more likely to experience complications such as shoulder dystocia, which um, may necessitate resuscitation and then subsequent nursery admission. But infants of mothers with GDM don't necessarily warrant automatic admission to the nursery. So they should still be assessed quite soon after birth for complications like hypoglycemia or respiratory distress. But really, all babies of mothers with GDM, the only extra care is really required. They should have their sugars checked at one hour, two hour and four hours of age. And then every four to six hours for at least 24 hours until those sugars are stable. But that is something that can be carried out on the ward. And it is important as well to keep in mind that if there is one abnormal sugar, then they should continue that sugar monitoring until they do get normal sugars for, for at least 24 hours and they should all be pre-feed sugars as well. So when we're monitoring those sugars, we're looking for hypoglycemia. So can you tell me what's involved in the management of a baby with hypoglycemia? Sure. So it really depends on your degree of hypoglycemia. We would define that as a sugar that's under 2.6. So your options for treatment in the unit that I practice in or have practiced in in the past is if the sugar is between 1.5 to 2.5, then you can, um, first port of call, you can trial enteral feed, whether that be with breast milk or formula. And then it's important if it's low, you check it within half an hour to an hour after the feed to ensure that it's coming up. If you're not winning there, then you need to consider your IV dextrose, 10% dextrose. If your sugar is anywhere from 1 to 1.4, then we would tend to just start IV dextrose straight away. And you would start that generally at a rate of 60 mils per kilo per day. If the child is already on IV dextrose and you're not achieving good sugars, 
based on that rate, you can always bump it up to 80 mils per kilo per day. If you're needing much more than that volume on day one of life, then you should look at increasing your concentration of dextrose. And if you're getting beyond 12% dextrose, that's when you need to look at central access, so your umbilical line. And of course, if that's the case, if they're hooked up to an IV or they've got umbilical lines, then tend to need to monitor those babies in the nursery rather than on the ward. And then if your sugar is well under one, then you do start your IV dextrose straight away and you consider IM glucagon. We do tend to shy away from boluses of dextrose as it can lead to a rebound hypoglycemia. But if you're getting sugars under one, it is something you've got to consider and always rechecking your sugar about 30 minutes after the intervention to make sure you're headed in the right direction. As I said, they're the rough guidelines for our unit and it may differ across the country. Right, so are there any special issues you expect for macrosomic infants different to the rest of the GDM population in the postpartum time? Yeah, so they are um, at increased risk of certain things. So as we know, infants of GDM mums can have an increased risk of a range of complications, including yeah, cardiac defects and gastrointestinal respiratory distress, etc. But those that are macrosomic are more likely to have issues specifically with shoulder dystocia, as we mentioned before, and associated brachial plexus injury. They're also more likely to encounter hypoglycemia and jaundice, so hyperbilirubinemia, they're polycythemic, and also they're more likely to encounter respiratory distress as well. So are we admitting too many babies to the nursery after GDM when they could be with their mothers? Do you think we're too cautious? Do you think we could manage babies of mothers with GDM better so we don't have to separate the mothers and babies? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the only instance I can think of perhaps unnecessary admissions to the nursery for these infants would be if it was purely for BSL monitoring because that is something that can be carried out in the ward. I know some units automatically, if the babies are macrosomic, they're admitted to the nursery for sugar monitoring. That's not the case in the unit that I've worked in, especially working in breastfeeding-friendly hospitals. All measures are kind of carried out to try and avoid that separation of mother and baby. So if it's just for sugar monitoring, that is encouraged to be done on the ward. Obviously, if you're having issues with your sugars or the baby's having any other complications like respiratory distress or, or congenital heart defects, that is something that needs to be carried out in the nursery. But just your sugar monitoring, I think, can be carried out on the ward. So what is the role of breastfeeding in babies of GDM women? There's some evidence to support that it will reverse the epigenetic changes which change the child's long-term health outlook. So in short, there's no real robust evidence that I'm aware of. There is significant evidence of an association between breastfeeding and lowering the risk of being overweight during childhood and adolescence in the general population. However, there's no such study that has specifically narrowed that down to the GDM population. In fact, the studies that have been formed aren't very well constructed. Um, They're more observational. So there's been a range of results. Some have indicated that these breastfed babies are at increased risk. Some have indicated reduced risk. So there's no real consensus out there yet. But I think breastfeeding is promoted for its other beneficial effects. So what does GDM signify for the infant and into later life? How does it change their future? Yeah, so so we know intrauterine exposure um, to high sugar levels results in fetal hyperinsulinemia. Um, and that can affect then the development of adipose tissue and, and the pancreatic beta cells as well. So there have been multiple studies that show this leads to increased BMI and impaired glucose metabolism. And then that may result in an increased risk for obesity and new metabolic syndrome as well later in life. And that's an effect that's seen in offspring for both pre-gestational and gestational diabetes as well. Thanks for joining us on COG, Dr. McGrath. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Rachel. Next up on COG, Journal Club. Rachel, as you know, in preparation for this podcast, we've been looking through the recent literature, looking at articles about gestational diabetes and sometimes obesity. 
And a study that caught my eye was published in a supplement in the American Journal of ONG in January 2017. This was a study entitled The Interaction Between Obesity and Gestational Diabetes on the Risk of Stillbirth. And one of the main authors was Aaron Cockey, who's coming to the RANSCOG New Zealand Annual Scientific Meeting later this year. And Professor Cockey comes from Oregon. And this was a massive retrospective study that was based in Texas, looking at over 2 million women and over 83,000 pregnancies that were complicated by gestational diabetes. So what was interesting, in a pregnancy, if you're a normal weight and didn't have diabetes, your risk of stillbirth was 0.6 per thousand live births. If you were morbidly obese and didn't have diabetes, your risk of stillbirth per thousand births was 5.9. If you had diabetes and were of normal weight, your risk of stillbirth was 1 per thousand births. And if you were morbidly obese, your risks of stillbirth were 8.4 per thousand births. And so what this really shows is that the effect of gestational diabetes and obesity on stillbirth seem to be multiplicative rather than simply additive. And really means, I guess, that these, these pregnancies, if a woman is morbidly obese and has diabetes, her pregnancy should really be deemed high risk and that she really needs a lot of intense antepartum fetal surveillance and possibly other interventions done in an endeavour to improve perinatal outcome in this group. So the take-home practice point for me was that we need to really closely monitor these women from 36 weeks gestation. This study only included pregnancies after 36 completed weeks, Mm. and so it shows that this extreme increase in risk for the morbidly obese diabetic women occurs at term. This is a large retrospective cohort analysis from Texas, which indicates that the stillbirth risk associated with increasing BMI and gestational diabetes is multiplicative rather than additive, with women affected by both at greatest risk. Women affected by both morbid obesity and gestational diabetes are exposed to a stillbirth risk of 8.4 per thousand births after 36 weeks. RCT evidence is required to support risk management strategies such as induction of labour for the management of women with increasing BMI. So the first study that caught my eye in Journal Club this week is entitled Perinatal Outcomes After Adopting a One-Versus-Two-Step Approach in Diagnosing Gestational Diabetes. It was authored by Olusei and colleagues and published in the Journal of Maternal Fetal and Neonatal Medicine earlier this year. This study was a retrospective review of records between two distinct six-month epochs at a hospital in Florida. The first cohort were women diagnosed with gestational diabetes between November 2011 and May 2012 using the old two-step approach where we use the 50-gram GCT and women who screened positive then underwent a diagnostic test with the three-hour 100-gram GTT. It's notable for us here in Australia that three-hour GTT is slightly different to the two-hour test that we're more familiar with. So the perinatal outcomes from this group were compared to women who underwent the one-step approach a couple of years later in the same six-month epoch. And those women were diagnosed with a single 75-gram GTT over two hours. This is the one that we're more familiar with here in Australia. It's a two-hour test that only requires one abnormal glucose reading to be considered diagnostic for GDM. The study was conducted in Florida and had a total of 404 patients who underwent diagnostic tests during the two time periods. In the two-step diagnostic method, 5.5% of women were diagnosed as diabetic after the three-hour GTT versus 15.96% diagnosed on two-hour GTT in the second cohort. This difference was statistically significant with a p-value of less than 0.0002. So lots more women were being diagnosed with GDM on the basis of the single-step approach, which is what we have come to expect. The authors then went on to analyse the perinatal outcomes for both the women and their babies, and they found no difference. The entire sample size of 72 women across both groups was, however, completely underpowered to detect anything significant in terms of clinical outcomes. There was no statistically significant differences in maternal outcomes like SVD, operative vaginal delivery, primary caesarean section, preeclampsia, gestational hypertension, or chronic hypertension. Equally, there were no significant differences in neonatal outcomes like macrosomia, low five-minute APGAR, RDS, hypoglycemia. There were no significant differences between the neonatal groups. 
But that's not surprising given there were 26 women in the first cohort and 53 in the second. The study was hardly powered to detect significant clinical outcomes. So Ted, the take-home message? The take-home message from me was that the study was too small to really decide on this important question. So I think we need lots more evidence in this area and trials that are sufficiently powered to help us answer what is really an important question. I'm happy, though, to see that Australia's gone to performance of a formal glucose tolerance test to diagnose gestational diabetes, as I think women certainly didn't like having to have a glucose challenge test and then a lot of them subsequently a GTT. This study further confirms that the single-step approach increases diagnosis of GDM. Larger studies are required to detect any changes in perinatal outcomes for women and their babies. Australian data reflecting the effect of the change in diagnostic criteria for GDM is lacking. The third article that caught my eye was a randomised controlled trial of exercise during pregnancy to prevent gestational diabetes and improve pregnancy outcome. And this was a study that was published in the American Journal of ONG in April this year. It was a study based in China. It was under the tertiary centre in China. And it looked at prospectively randomising who were non-smokers who were over 18 years of age with a singleton pregnancy met the criteria for being overweight or obese, that is, they had a BMI greater than 24. So these women, if they had a singleton pregnancy that was seemingly progressing normally after 12 weeks gestation, were randomly allocated to either exercise or to a control group. Patients who were allocated to the exercise group assigned to exercise three times a week for at least 30 minutes cycling. And this Cycling program was begun within three days of randomization until 37 weeks of gestation. And this article caught my eye because the evidence about exercise and GDM prevention is a little bit uncertain. And this was exemplified by a recent meta-analysis that was published last year in the Green Journal, where they looked at 10 RCTs of physical activity in GDM from 1966 through to 2014 to show that exercise interventions had about a 28% reduction in the incidence of GDM compared to controls, but only two of the 10 included studies showed a protective effect of exercise on GDM independently. What this study showed was that cycling exercise initiated early in pregnancy and performed for at least 30 minutes three times a week was associated with a significant reduction in the frequency of GDM in overweight and obese pregnant women. So this was Again, another study that highlights perhaps the importance of instituting exercise early in limiting gestational weight gain. But does it really have a significant effect on the incidence of GDM? Well, this study suggests it does. But as I say, the evidence is still not conclusive. I think it highlights the need for more research in this area. But I think it also shows the importance of trying to encourage our overweight and obese women to adopt an exercise program from early on in pregnancy can't be bad and might do some good. The thing that was striking about this is that it is a Chinese study, so it may not be completely generalizable for us, but it showed that also the reach of researchers, because one of the co-authors was John Newnham from Perth. And I know that the University of Western Australia does have a presence in China, and they're looking at collaborative links. And it's but one example of that international flavor of research these days, which can only be good, I think. The take-home practice point for me for this study, Ted, was around timing. So it appears that in accordance with some other work that's been done, that if women commence an exercise program pre-pregnancy or within the first trimester, that can impact on their GDM rates, whereas the bulk of the other literature suggests that exercise interventions commenced in the second trimester or after won't have any impact on GDM rates. As for no harm, weren't the baby smaller? Babies were smaller, but that may not necessarily be a bad thing. As we know with diabetes, big is not always better. Regular, supervised, vigorous exercise commenced in the first trimester may reduce GDM in women who are overweight and obese. Verification of this data is desperately needed internationally to inform practice. While GDM rates are reduced, outcome measures such as macrosomia, gestational age at birth and caesarean delivery are unaffected. 
The fourth study in Journal Club today is from a journal called Pediatric Obesity, published in April of 2017, and it's entitled Maternal Obesity, Gestational Diabetes, Breastfeeding, and Childhood Overweight at Age 2 Years. And the author is Zed Bidercanfield and colleagues. So this was a large retrospective longitudinal cohort study following children born at KPSC, which is a health institution in Southern California, and it's an organization which uses electronic medical records. Women birthed with this service and then their children are followed up with the child health service for at least two years after birth. And this study looked at over 15,000 mother offspring pairs who had complete data sets available. The primary exposures that were looked at were maternal pre-pregnancy BMI, GDM status, excessive gestational weight gain and breastfeeding status for each child. The main outcome measure was children's overweight status at two years. Overweight for the kids was defined as a BMI of greater than 85% for age and sex. So this study showed that diagnosis with gestational diabetes appears to reduce rates of excessive gestational weight gain. It also showed that overweight and obesity at two years of age was associated with in order of association pre-pregnancy obesity, pre-pregnancy overweight, excessive gestational weight gain. This paper showed that GDM does not appear to be associated with childhood obesity at two years of age, though other data suggests that that association can occur from the age of seven. So perhaps age two is a bit early for the metabolic pathway to be affected by GDM. Interestingly, this study showed that breastfeeding is protective against childhood overweight and obesity at two years of age. So Rachel, the take-home message for me in this study was the effect of breastfeeding. We know that The composition of breast milk changes to meet the baby's growing needs. We know that it's important in mitigating some of the weight gain that mothers have during pregnancy, that three or four kilos of body fat that women um, put on during pregnancy is meant to be used up during the breastfeeding period. So if women don't breastfeed, can be perhaps contributed to their becoming obese later in life. And we know that breastfeeding not only has benefits for the mother, but it has many benefits for the baby thing that we don't know yet, and there is some research coming out now to suggest that breastfeeding, if it's done for more than six months, may mitigate some of the epigenetic changes that are generated on fetuses when they're in utero. And this may reverse some of those epigenetic changes that can lead on to future childhood obesity. We need much more research in this area because it's still an emerging area of clinical medicine. But I think it's interesting to think that something as natural as breastfeeding can have such a a long-lasting effect on a baby and help the baby as it grows into a child and subsequently an adult. And if you can do anything in childhood, something as simple as breastfeeding that will reduce the burden of adult disease, I think it's even more reason to focus on promotion of breastfeeding for mothers for longer than six months, preferably for a year. Although this study did just look at breastfeeding status out to six months, Mm. uh, without noting whether it was exclusive or not, it was maternal self-reported breastfeeding Mm. uh, at Childhood Health Review. That's important because we know that in Australia our breastfeeding rates are pretty poor. WHO recommends that women breastfeed exclusively for six months, but in Australia only about 10% of babies would have that. 50%, I think, of Australian babies, or a bit over 50%, are receiving some breast milk but we're perhaps not doing as well as we could. And clearly there are many reasons for this, but I think that it's really up to employers and other groups to try to look at how we can facilitate breastfeeding for mothers on a return-to-work program. It's something that's so important for the health of babies. Yeah, the take-home practice point for me was definitely around the breastfeeding and also just reinforcing that fact that pre-pregnancy obesity uh, it really does impact on the long-term health of a child. So anything that can be done to support women to lose weight, get fit and strong before they fall pregnant, will only improve their health and the health of their children in the long run. This large retrospective cohort study suggests that early childhood overweight and obesity is associated with pre-pregnancy overweight and obesity and gestational weight gain. Breastfeeding is protective against early childhood obesity and the support and promotion of breastfeeding should be a public health priority. So if you're interested in accessing the references for Journal Club, they are available on the website, which is cog.podbean.com. Don't forget, you can also find us on iTunes, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynecology. And if you've liked our program, please do leave a review. So until next month, we will be featuring Professor Scott White from Perth, been involved in the Western Australian Preterm Birth Initiative, 
is going to give us some insights into that study. Western Australia hopes to achieve its very ambitious target of producing its preterm birth rate by 30% over the next five years. Stay tuned to hear from Scott and others about the prevention of preterm birth. Thanks for joining us on COG episode two. If you have any feedback, you can contact me via that website, cog.podbean.com or at our email address, which is cogconversation at gmail.com. Bye now.